On this subject, God loves the poor. And when people make that statement, it's kind of an obvious statement and a no-brainer. They look at us as though, don't you know God loves the poor? So if God loves the poor, then why are you challenging anything about this? But often, this statement, God loves the poor, or God loves the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the aliens, and these days, the refugees. Now, when people say those things, they're really not understanding these issues biblically. They're not understanding these issues biblically. People do not receive God's grace and favor for spiritual benefit simply because of their social status. Their social status, whether legal or illegal, rich or poor, God, they are not in God's favor if they are rich, and they're not in God's favor if they are poor. This is not the way the Bible looks at it. That's not the way the issue should be addressed. Let's look at a few examples of why this is not the case at all. The poor are not automatically righteous. Let us establish that fact. The first is from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments, we do have a couple of commandments that are addressed to describe what is righteous and what is unrighteous. In Exodus 20, verse 15, it says, You shall not steal. Who is the one who usually steals? Or often steals? Not exclusively. Rich people steal. But it's poor people who steal. Poor people steal because they want something they don't possess. So when they want something they don't possess, they commit a crime against God. They uh, disobey the commandments of God. So poverty, a poor status, does not make one automatically righteous and with the favor of God. The blessing of God does not automatically rest upon him. Verse 17, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, who is the one that usually looks on the other neighbor and wants what the neighbor has? The one who doesn't have what the neighbor has. The one who doesn't have can be the poor man. The poor man, the underprivileged man, the one who does not possess what his neighbor has. But in these cases, it's clear that God does not consider the one who does not have to be in the right when he wants what does not belong to him. Whether it's the desire to have it or whether it's the actual evil deed of stealing from the neighbor. Another example of how the poor are not automatically righteous. Isaiah 9, verse 17. Isaiah 9, verse 17. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. Every one of them is godless and an evildoer. Why is it that God will not take pleasure in them or have pity on them. Why no compassion for the people? Orphans and widows, because everyone is godless and an evildoer. Their social status, their economic status, does not automatically make them in the right before God. It is whether they are practicing righteousness or wickedness that gives them any favor with God. We see examples of this also in the New Testament. 
John chapter 4, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. The woman at the well was one who was notorious. She had five husbands, and the man she had at the time was not her husband. Typically, women who live that way are not rich people, unless they live in Hollywood. They're not rich people. So this is an obvious case of a poor woman who needed salvation, and this is why Jesus preached to her salvation, which she eventually believed. Another one in John is John chapter 6. Remember that Jesus fed the 5,000. When he fed the 5,000, he fed them with bread and with fish, and they followed him. They enjoyed being supplied with food. But why did they follow him? Because they wanted more. They wanted other physical material provisions that Jesus could provide. We know that they were fixated wrongly on the physical and material because when Jesus told them spiritual truths, truths about how they had to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, that they had to understand that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. When they had to understand these truths, it says in John 6, 60, Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to this? Who can tolerate listening to these hard spiritual words of Jesus? We didn't come to listen to the spiritual. We came to listen to the physical. They wanted that because they didn't have the physical. They were so fixated on the physical, they had no concern for the spiritual. They were unrighteous. Verse 66, John 6, 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And then Simon Peter gives a good answer. Now, notice, only twelve are there. Jesus turns to them, even though 5,000 were there. 5,000 plus, 5,000 men, not including women and children. They all left. They were poor people, physically poor people, and even spiritually poor people, because they refused to listen to the spiritual truth of Jesus Christ himself, who had already shown that he could give them both the physical and the spiritual by his life and ministry. It's clear here. Let's notice also in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, we'll see here that God expects us in the church also to understand that a poor person, and in this case, a widow, 1 Timothy 5, a widow is not automatically to receive monetary help from the church simply because she's a widow. It depends on her righteousness. It depends on her godliness. 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Now what is a widow indeed? A true widow. A widow that should receive the attention of the church so that the church helps the needy widow. What kind of a widow should the church help? He explains. Verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. 
But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Note here that the children and grandchildren of the widow, they should first primarily give support for their own widows. They are the ones who should take care of the monetary, physical, practical needs of their own widows. They should do so. But then, one who does not do so denies the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If one does not love his closest neighbor, love his brother, in this case, literally sister, by providing for them in this way, he is denying the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So who should receive the help of the church? Verse 9. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them, and let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed." A widow indeed, according to the Apostle Paul, by the word of the Lord, he says, is a widow who has practiced godliness, verses 9 and 10. And if she meets the age, meets the age requirement of not, being not less than 60 years old. If she's not less than 60 years old, and according to verses 9 and 10, if she has practiced godliness, then she may receive help from the church. But if she does not fit, uh, fit these requirements, she should not receive help from the church. Let the family take care of her. And if she won't even receive that kind of help, and if she's young enough, then she should get married. She should get married if she's young enough. Bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. And those widows who are wanton widows, who don't live a righteous life, who do not live a righteous life according to verse 6, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. That is, a widow who has genuine needs, if she chooses not to be diligent, either in being young enough and getting remarried, or being godly so that she's on the list of the church, she is dead even while she lives. Clearly, the apostle is teaching that a widow can be a godless widow, an ungodly widow. He's saying that. And he describes their character in verses 12 and 13. They made a vow earlier in their life to live for Christ when their husband first died. But then, when their husband died, they began to do these other things. They began to want to get married, 
verse 12. They also, verse 13, they are idle, go around house to house. There are gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. They're, they're using their, their lips and their legs in godless ways. That's what's the, what they're doing. And because of that, they are under condemnation. They're described as dead. And 15 says that they have already turned aside to follow Satan. No Satan follower is a believer and goes to heaven. No follower of Satan goes to heaven. So, the first point we have established is that an economic or material status does not mean that those people are automatically candidates for help from us, from the Christians or from the church. They are not automatic recipients of whatever they want, whatever they demand that they want. It doesn't happen that way. It depends on whether they are righteous or not. Now, another truth we ought to keep in mind is that the rich are not automatically wicked. The rich are not automatically wicked. You see, just as we said the poor are not automatically righteous, the rich are not automatically wicked. I know that in the last at least 150 years around the world and and even in the United States, there, is, uh, there are ideologies, Marxism, Stalinism, Leninism, Maoism, under many names, Alinskyism, and now our age, Obamaism, that, that people are said to be wicked and evil simply because they have wealth. Simply because they have wealth. In theology, this has infiltrated seminaries, theological institutions, Christian universities, and it is known as liberation theology. Liberation theology. It's prominent in many, many places in the United States and even Baptist seminaries and all around the world. All around, everywhere. It's, it has permeated everything. So these ideologies say that because you are rich, automatically you are unrighteous. You're unrighteous. However, we have clear biblical examples. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. These were rich people. These were rich people. In Luke chapter 8, there were wealthy women who followed Jesus among the other disciples. They followed Jesus, and it says, for example, And Joanna, the wife of Huzzah, Herod's steward, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others were contributing to their support out of their private means. Helping Jesus in the ministry, Jesus and the disciples in the ministry, were these wealthy women, at least a couple of them, who had wealth and were using their wealth in the right way, just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the others did. These wealthy women did the same. Paul says in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, he has learned to live in abundance, and he has learned to live in want. Paul had an abundance. Luke, Luke was a physician. Typically, in every society, the physician, the doctor, the, usually is uh, of a status, both in terms of reputation, but also wealth, more than the average person. This is typically the way it is. So it is safe to presume and assume and conclude that Luke, the disciple, Luke was a wealthy man. And he wrote the book of Luke, 
and the book of Acts. He was a believer in Christ. So, let's not jump to conclusions, false conclusions, and believe the, the world's ideologies and the wicked ideas of the world that just because one is rich, therefore he is evil. It does not depend on that. It depends on faith. Number three, our prayers should be offered for the salvation of people of every status and rank of society. Our prayers should be offered for the salvation of people from all ranks of society. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It is easy for commoners not to pray for kings, thinking that they have no need of anything, and thinking that because of their wealth they are automatically in heaven. It's not the case. Or because of their wealth, they are unreachable. The gospel cannot reach them. That's not the case either. We're supposed to pray for kings and all who are in authority so that salvation may reach them so that they can treat us properly, the rest of the people of the land properly. Let's offer prayer, therefore. Another issue is that whenever we're dealing with people, we have to deal with them with justice. Justice. This term justice is a good word. It's a biblical word. The Bible uses the term justice. However, what has happened in our society is the term has been hijacked. It has been hijacked from people who use it, the phrase social justice. Social justice. Social justice does not mean biblical justice. Social justice is a term coined by Marxists, Leninists, Stalinists, Maoists. It's coined by them, and it is brought into the church to dupe us and to trick us and to stumble us into thinking, don't you care about social justice? Don't you care? But what do they mean by social justice? What they mean is you get rid of the wealth of the rich and then give it to them, but under the pretext that they're going to give it to the poor, and then everybody will have equal status, equal economic status. But it doesn't work that way. Because where, wherever that happens, where, wherever you have communist, Marxist, totalitarian governments who take the money of the rich, what ends up happening to those countries? It creates equal misery, not equal economic enlightenment. That's not what it causes. Everybody has equal misery. Who wants to live in Vietnam? No, the Vietnamese want to flee here. Who wants to live in Cuba? No, the Cubans want to flee here. Who wants to live in North Korea? No, the North Koreans want to flee here. The Chinese want to flee here. The Indians want to flee here. Everybody wants to flee to a place that is prosperous and where there is relative freedom. Yes, we don't have freedom in the way that we should have it, but we have more of it than they do. And that's why they come here. So, this term social justice, don't use the word. 
And in fact, when they use the word, throw it back onto their lap because it's a dead rat. The dead rat should not be lobbed onto your lap. Throw it back at them. And here, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 admonishes us in this regard. Leviticus 19. 15. 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fearly. You, are, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. No injustice in judgment. Don't be partial to the poor or the great. Don't be partial to the poor simply because he's poor. And don't be partial to the great or the rich simply because he's got a lot of money and influence. Don't do that. Judge your neighbor fairly. And also, don't slander. Don't go to the rich and slander the poor. And don't go to the poor and slander the rich. And don't act against the life of your neighbor. So all of, all of the, this commotion and rioting that's happening in the United States recently, is it justified biblically? No, because they are assassinating the authorities. They are assassinating innocent people who are going about their daily work. They're assassinating them. They are acting against the life of their neighbors. And it's a sin because they have either they are hyped up, they don't have a clue about what they're doing. Some of them are hired men. And all of these are organizers who desire the destruction of law-abiding citizens and Christian civilization. That's what they do. And the Bible here warns us not to partake with uh, them and not to condone what they do. Instead, we ought to condemn it. One more place that speaks of justice. Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verse 1. Exodus 23, verse 1. You shall not carry a false rumor. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty." And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. And you shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. Justice should be meted out in all cases. Then, how should the poor obtain their wealth? How should the poor obtain their wealth? Should they register their name? and social security number with the government office and then show up after filling up their application, show up or just give their bank account number so that the money is directly deposited from people who are working to people who are not working. Is that the way it's supposed to work? Look at Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 9. 
Leviticus 19, verse 9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. When they harvest, they were not to glean their harvest. Those who were needy, the stranger, those who were widows and orphans, they were the ones who were supposed to go out into the field and obtain their own food. They're supposed to glean for their own food so that they can eat. They're not told to sit in a building or to sit at their house and wait for somebody to bring the, the supplies to them or even for it to be centralized for the government to give it to them. In fact, the scripture says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, 6-15, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Ephesians 4.28, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but let him work and share with him who has need. This is the way it's supposed to be done. We know that Ruth did this. Ruth was a foreigner, a Moabite. She desired to leave her pagan gods and come to the land of Judah, from Moab to Judah. And she desired to be faithful and remarry, if possible, with Naomi, being under Naomi's authority, she wanted to go back to the land of Judah and work. And she did work. Boaz uh, and her, his workers allowed her to join in the field, and she gleaned and she worked. She was a poor widow. She was a foreigner. She was a woman. But it wasn't handed to her. She went to the field and she worked. Yes, Boaz noticed her diligence, and he gave her more than she gleaned. And that's fine. That was up to the free desires, free will, generosity of Boaz. I don't mean free will in the predestination sense. Free will in the sense of he had this voluntary desire to help her. And that was fine. And that's the way it should be. When the rich see the poor, and if they want to help the poor who have a genuine need, an emergency has happened, like the Good Samaritan. In the Good Samaritan incident parable, that man was in an emergency situation. The Samaritan had the means to help him, so he helped him. That's what we saw even in Exodus 23. If your ox or, or your enemy's ox or donkey is in jeopardy, then go help. Go help the person in need. But this is to be done individually. This is to be done in genuine circumstances. Not when people are lazy and miserable people. Not when they are leeches on society. Not those kinds of people. Those kinds of people should not receive a penny from us. In fact, the apostle Peter, Peter and John said in Acts chapter 3, to the lame man who had a genuine need, I do not possess silver and gold. Now, did, does that mean they had no money? Certainly they had some money. I do not possess silver and gold, though, they said, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk! They gave the man, something spiritual in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, they performed a miracle to vindicate that they were preaching the true gospel. And what did that lame man who was healed do? Did he walk away? No. He followed them into the temple, leaping and jumping and praising God. He, he showed true conversion. 
because he followed them that way for spiritual benefits, not material benefits. So let's, let's look at the poor the way God looks at the poor. The poor are not automatically righteous because of their poverty, nor are the rich automatically wicked because of their richness. We ought to practice justice toward everybody, and we ought to expect those who are able to work that they should work in order to eat. And if they won't work, then don't give them any food to eat. Don't do it at all. Don't give them a penny, and don't give them a piece of bread. In, in fact, call them to repent. Repent of their sins. Because if you give them a piece of bread, and they have still a few dollars in their pocket, they'll go buy some hard liquor and get drunk. If you give them a penny, then they'll collect enough pennies in order to go buy cigarettes. They have cell phones. They have dogs. They have all kinds of instruments and things. How did they acquire them? Therefore, let us not aid and abet. Let us not help those people who are doing wickedness promote their wickedness. No. Call them to repentance. Preach the gospel to them. And tell them that this is the way Jesus would have done it. This is what Jesus would do. This is what Peter and John did. This is what Paul the Apostle preached. This is what they taught. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Okay, we'll, we'll do one question. <laughs> okay, one question. And this is um, <clears throat> from uh, Pastor Jared. And he wants to know, uh, the argument scholars make to argue for old earth is that there are gaps in the Old Testament genealogies. This argument assumes that we cannot get an accurate chronology of history if we follow the story of the Bible. What would you say to these scholars? And what evidence does the scripture provide to point to young earth? In the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapters 5 and 11, they do not have gaps in the genealogies. Genesis chapters 5 and 11 do not have gaps in the genealogies. Yes, genealogies in the Bible sometimes have gaps. That is, you might have the name of the son and maybe of the grandfather, but not the father. It might be that way. For example, the obvious one is, Jesus is called son of David, but David lived a thousand years before. And even the son of Saul, um, or grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth, it is said that his father was Saul. But in the context, it already told us that his father was Jonathan. But what it means is his grandfather was Saul. So yes, the Bible does talk that way. But the issue is, does the Bible talk that way in Genesis 5 and 11? And the answer is absolutely not. It does not speak that way. How do we know it doesn't? Notice, we're given in Genesis 5 and 11 the, the age of the father when the son was born. The age of the father when the named son was born. Example, it says in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. 
Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. This is the way it is, and it reads this way primarily in Genesis 5 and in Genesis 11. The genealogies are this way. Now, if the genealogies are this way in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, we know that Adam had other sons. Do we know? not know that? Cain and Abel, he had them. And then it says there in the text, he had other sons and daughter, daughters. He had more. So we do know he had more before and after, but that's not the issue. The issue is, do we have the age of Adam when Seth was born? Yes. And then do we have the age of Seth when Enosh was born? Yes. Verse 6, and Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Verse 9, and Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Canaan. And it goes on like this. So if that's the case, we can go from Adam and all the way to Abraham, Genesis 11. From Adam to Abraham, and we can calculate the years. From Adam to Abraham. And if we can do that, then we can go from Abraham to David, and from David to Jesus. And the scriptures and the rest of the Bible gives us chronologies and dates so that we can correlate all of that. How to go from Abraham to David, or Abraham to Moses, and Moses to David, David to the kings, the various kings, and all the way to the time of Jesus. So there's no room for gaps. Now, let's just suppose, for the sake of argument, that there were gaps, and we're just completely wrong with this. In Genesis 5 and 11. Let's just suppose that we're completely wrong in Genesis 5 and 11. Aren't we talking about the existence of humans? So how could humans be, if there is a gap, humans be on the earth for millions or billions of years? Not even the evolutionists believe humans were around for millions or billions of years. So how would a gap in the genealogies in regards to humans help with the age of the earth and say the earth is 4.5 billion years old? How does that help the argument? It's a non sequitur. What does that have to do with it? All you can do is determine how old Adam was, whether he lived 6,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago. That's all you can do with it if there's a gap in Genesis 5. You can't go from a gap in Genesis 5 to the earth being 100 million or 4.5 billion years old. You can't do that. It's ridiculous. It's illogical, irrational. So I could say more about that. And then they would say, oh, well, there is a gap in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There's a gap over there. However, however, the, the Hebrew of Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 does not support a gap there. It does not support a gap. The gap theory or the ruin reconstruction theory or Canaanite gap theory, whatever kind of gap people look for here, it does not exist in the Hebrew text. Absolutely not. And there are translations, I believe the New Revised Standard Version, NRSV, that indicate from their translation or footnote that that's possible. Those scholars should be ashamed of themselves. Is this being recorded? Please put this on the internet. 
Those scholars should be ashamed of themselves for, for doing that. They know better. It's impossible grammatically. The Hebrew will not allow for that. They say, Genesis 1.1, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, it's impossible. You cannot render the Hebrew text that way. Absolutely impossible. 